welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Molly O'Brien. And this is We Podicano, an Our Band Could Be Your Life miniseries. We're taking a journey through Michael Azarad's chronicle of the 1980s American underground rock scene, continuing today with Chapter 3, Mission of Burma. Formed by Roger Miller, Clint Conley, and Peter Prescott in Boston, Mass. in 1979, Mission of Burma quickly garnered regional fame and critical success through their intense, unconventional songs and notoriously loud live shows. Their sound augmented by the mysterious offstage sound engineer-slash-tape loop manipulator Martin Swope. But the band's obvious greatness would meet the limitations of indie distribution, as well as Roger Miller's chronic tinnitus, causing the group to disband at the precipice of breaking through. But in the years since, they've achieved legendary underground status, have reformed, released four new albums, and today we'll be learning all about the horrible truth about Burma through Chapter 3 of Michael Azarad's Our Band Could Be Your Life. But first, let's introduce our guest. He is a writer for Rolling Stone and author of such books as Love is a Mixtape and Turn Around Bright Eyes, The Rituals of Love and Karaoke. Folks. It's Rob Sheffield. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, Chris and Molly. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. What a dream to be on this podcast. <laughs> oh. I've loved your podcast for so long. Oh, you We're flatter so us, We're so glad to have you. Yes, we are, we are glad to have you here. We were honestly uh, having a little uh, trouble filling out for mission, the Mission of Burma guest list. We were like, who would be perfect for this? And then we both started reading the book and saw, of course, you quoted in the first book like two paragraphs of the Burma section. We we're like, oh, we need to just ask Rob to do it. Good Lord, I love that band. Mission of Burma, they were a life-changing band for me, I'm sure. Uh, almost at every single chapter of this podcast, somebody's going to say the word life-changing. And, and I realize it's a bit of a cliche, but absolutely the before and after with hearing Mission of Burma was just completely altered everything in my life since then. And you are, you're a Boston area boy yeah I did do. you hear them in their boston uh prime yeah they uh they were they they got played on the radio in boston on the local <laughs> it's so insane the it's local wild radio. to think that of uh, you could hear something like mission of burma on the like actual rate like in your car like tuning your your tuner to it yes i was just a little kid so i i wasn't old enough to go see their live shows i was just like <laughs> you know like 13 14 um but uh, they got played on WBCN, which was, of course, one of the all-time great American rock radio stations that you know started as just total straight-up hippie freeform station in the late 60s and then became, by the late 70s, kind of a new wave post-punk powerhouse. And mm -hmm. they played Mission of Burma. They played a lot of local stuff. But it was amazing to hear that in rotation and to hear a, a, the very first song I heard them play was... Uh, that's when I reached for my revolver. And, you know, when you're, you know, an angsty 14-year-old boy, it's like, this, this is the sound of my soul. <laughs> and it was completely, and, and just the more you dig into that catalog, the more there is there, even though they, they had just very little recorded in their actual lifetime. I mean, we'll get to that. But, like, just what an astounding story of a band that had this brief but limited run, and then they went away for... 15, 20 years and came back and the second half of their career, every bit as amazing as the first half. That just never happens. <laughs> right. Truly when you're 14, uh, 
everything is when you uh, reach for your revolver. <laughs> <laughs> yes, glad glad you grew up in in gun control fearing Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like, it was strictly <laughs> metaphorical. But uh, your know, Boston was such an amazing city to grow up in as a music fan because there was so, so much sort of uh, call and response between different types of music. So I remember reading an interview with Mishnah Burma where Roger Miller was talking about how his favorite band of all time was Pink Floyd. And <laughs> dogmatic little, you know, like punk rock 14-year-old me was like, hum, I'm sure they got that quote <laughs> wrong. I'm sure he meant to say <laughs> pig bag or something. And it just it just sounded like Pink Floyd. But But he talked about how, you know, obsessive he was about Sid Barrett, how he collected all these Sid Barrett bootlegs. And, you know, of course, I love that stuff now, in part because of Mission of Burma's influence on my listening. But that was so mind-blowing at the time that a band that we thought of as, you know, our little uh, uh, local punk rock voicing our angsty teenage souls. And of course, they were way beyond that. And they were so influenced by jazz stuff and also Cleveland, Mm -hmm. Detroit punk stuff, but also just flat out psychedelic prog stuff that I would have run a million miles in the other direction from, but this this was Mission of Burma's thing. It was, so uh, it was very expansive. That was like a very, very, very prototypical Boston sort of way of listening to music. Just, just that, you know, it was a town full of musicians, record collectors, freaks, fanatics, uh, <laughs> bands, you know, would-be messiahs, you know, that wonderful, <laughs> wonderful Ryan Walsh book about Astral Weeks and about that sort of like crazy cult sort of communities that would spring up around Boston Mm. with the transient student populations. And so you had these, you know, crazy gurus who had cults in Boston and Lou Reed and Jonathan Richmond would be hanging out, you know, like, and, and that was just the kind of that Boston environment that, you know, that even though I, 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 you know, wasn't there to, to be a, you know, an adult in in the sixties or (laughs) seventies part of it, but that was definitely part of the heritage of being a music fan in Boston. Molly, what was your first experience with Mission? This book. I don't think I had, if I had heard a Mission of Burma song, which I'm sure I ambiently absorbed at some, you know, bar or cool, you know, maybe a coffee shop staffed by someone with taste. But like, I, it wasn't until I read this book the first time five or so years ago that I was like, and I'd heard the name Mission of Burma. And I think maybe, I, you know, if, if you hear a band name and you kind of maybe associate them with a certain scene you kind of hear the like in your head of like yeah that seems like that's what they would be but yeah no I I didn't listen to them until I read the book despite being a I'm not I'm not a Boston person we we have another podcast Rob where we I'm reading uh Chris Infinite Jest on air and that is about that is set in Boston mostly uh and they have like the MIT the MIT radio station is like a little mini character in it and I was I was just joking about how Boston is like the city that that's like the city for people from Vermont, like New York. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No way. Like way too big, way too far. Boston is like, <laughs> we can like deal with accessible. That. Yeah, that's that's you, you can like you can grasp that in your mind. That's not going to freak you out too much. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that that's my that's my experience with Mission of Burma, which is to say basically zero. I knew Mission from high school. A friend of the show, Nathan Truman. Uh, past guest Nathan Truman, who I pilfered. Red Hot, his... Red Hot Chili Peppers correspondent Nathan Truman. Yes, Red Hot Chili Peppers correspondent <laughs> Nathan Truman ha- had all the good records, and I pilfered his correct collection, his and his sister's collection uh, in high school. And he he would have known that Mission was cool when they were getting back together and re-release and releasing new stuff in the early two thousands. So I probably got like weirdly like on off on or is it off on on? They're uh they're one of those. It's yeah one of them. <laughs> 
Uh, what either one? Effective like either maybe, way. Maybe ripped that from him in like 2003, and that was probably the first that I heard about them. And then also for some reason, all throughout uh, college, I had Academy Fight Song on my uh, MP3 players, but didn't really know its origin. Maybe there was like I don't know, like a Matador sampler or something that that <laughs> totally. threw it on. Like one of those ways that you you end up with a song. Uh, so, so I had heard them, but I guess I kind of had probably assumed that they were like a '90s or 2000s uh, indie band that had just like that's how I received them that they were like a Matador band from the '90s or something. Uh, mm-hmm. And it wasn't again until I read this book in like 2010 where I kind of put put it backwards in context of being like, oh, these guys are like late '70s in origin, really. And I guess it just speaks to their kind of eternally good sound that it's kind of sounds like they could have come out anytime between you know 1978 and 2005 and like felt not just like they fit into indie rock but were like an exceptional indie rock band of that time well yeah and at a time when you know the word indie rock that two-word yeah. idiom had yet to be invented you know that that word doesn't come until you know till 1989 basically it, it, it's a word that once it started to spread, it spread very fast because people had been waiting for a term like this. But there was nothing to describe or define what Mission or Burma were doing at the time. You know, we said we said punk or post-punk. Neither of those is really quite right because they were just way too expansive for that, especially as a live band. But I, I always love what uh, what Clint Conley said in uh, Simon Reynolds's book, "Rip It Up and Start Again," where he says, basically, we're just a a closet prog band that just happened to happen <laughs> during punk. And I kind of love yeah. that. And that, that helped me to understand, you know, partly why, you know, why, why they don't sound like anything else. They just, they knew so many chords, but it was, <laughs> it, it was a thing where, because it was so abrasive and powerful, you know, like it didn't, you know, it didn't set off my, I mean, now I'm embarrassed that I was so ideologically opposed to, you know, to prog rock and art rock and hippie rock and stuff that I love now. But that that was really their roots. And that was, you know, the first kind of stuff that Roger Miller was playing. And and mm-hmm. it was just kind of astounding that they were able to put all that in a song like, you know, Academy Fight Song, which was that was, you know, another one of you know the ones that I loved when I was a, a 14 year old kid. And even more than Revolver, that was uh, that was that was like very formed. I felt like somebody had glimpsed my psyche and put it in, in its <laughs> chaotic, incoherent form into, uh, you know, into three minutes and, and and just like that kind of sound it had before sort of indie rock was a template for bands trying to sound like this it must have mm. seemed to a lot of people like they were trying to do something else and failing because they had some <laughs> songs that were kind of anthemy you know like mm-hmm. like like academy and revolver um and and those were certainly you know anthemy songs live but i remember when um roger miller started to have his hearing problems i remember Gerard Cosloy made a joke in his conflict fanzine that actually Roger Miller went deaf from all the BU students yelling out for revolver. Um, <laughs> but, but that was very good. Like, but they had those songs that were anthemy and and you know, fame and fortune, another one. Like, uh, but those were those were songs that were clashy in a way. And and as a kid who was you know like very very clashy, I thought of Mission of Burma as a sort of sort of more neurotic and cerebral and abrasive version <laughs> mm-hmm. of that. But that's that's what it sounded like sort of was their premise. It was it was very different from that. But it was very easy for people to miss what they were trying to do because they had so many other songs that weren't at all anthony and and that were just very textury, but without keyboards and without anything, you know, lush for, mm-hmm. for 
for, mm-hmm. for the proggy headphony listener to, you know, to sort of grab onto. It's so funny seeing the photo of them or the, the couple of photos of them that were in the book because we, we were talking about this a little bit too last episode with Minutemen and their relationship to like what maybe Prague was and how Prague kind of was punk at that time. But the self-presentation is so different because I can see why maybe Prague isn't necessarily the most attractive thing to a, a, a young teen of a certain disposition because it's just like a <laughs> bunch of guys who are dressed like little like princelings and, like and they're playing like and classical music and they're bringing in the like fantastical element. And you look at Mission of Burma and they're just like, you know, guys who just kind of, they look like maybe a little dumpy, but they just kind of look like regular guys. I don't know. Like, the 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 artifice maybe wasn't there and that's what made it feel a little more accessible or something as opposed to the prog prog stuff the the words that keep coming up to me as we've talked about in these two episodes about it is the difference really it seems is like prog i kind of think of as delicate in a way Mm -hmm. especially in how ornate it can be whereas mission of burma and also men and men have this like very muscular uh, feeling to it and it i think it's in that power that it, they get lumped in i mean and obviously all, all the other ways that they you know toured and existed as a band and the people they influenced so they get lumped in with a uh, uh, punk but it, it is very funny that rob you've you've referred to them as a prog band now and they refer to themselves and we were talking about that with minutemen last week so maybe our it. band is secretly a uh book about the phoenix-like <laughs> resurrection of prog into a a, mm. a more powerful form absolutely you know like Bob Stinson loved to play the, the Steve Howe yes solos on stage. <laughs> like that was, you know, like I bet all these bands have some prog skeletons in, in the closet. But uh, it's so funny that like just just reading that interview where Roger Miller said his favorite band was Pink Floyd. that just, you know, something in my little boy heart broke that day, but <laughs> it grew back stronger. So flash flash forward to 2006 and um and I'm going to see Missioner Burma at Warsaw, which mm. is, you know, a rock venue. These were called live shows. They were really, really big back then. <laughs> oh, Google yeah, them. Yeah, they yeah. were a big deal. Um, <laughs> so um, they were playing. I live literally a block from the show. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, I was really tired. It was, you know, really, you know, it was really a, a nasty night. And I didn't feel like going out. I was like, blah, 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 going out to show. Like, and it was the kind of thing where, you know, my 15 year old self had to have a little talking to with me. It's like <laughs> Burma are playing literally two blocks from your house and there's absolutely no way you're not going. And of course, like mm-hmm. I knew as soon as I, I went, I would love it. But as it turned out, that was the week that Sid Barrett had died uh, in mm-hmm. 2006. And they began the show with Astronomy Domine. Like, and mm. they, they did a super epic, and that, that was that was how they began the show. Did this super epic, way beyond Amagama version of it, and 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 yet they made it sound like a Burma song. They made it sound like theirs, and it, you know, I, as often happened at Burma shows, I was not the only weepy dude. Like <laughs> when, 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 when it was getting weepy, but I was like, yeah. I, was, I was like, it's so funny that like my whole journey, and of course, like now, like you know, as an adult, I, I loved. You know, Sid Barrett and 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 I love Pink Floyd and I love like and it was so funny that I had gone through that whole journey with Burma and with and with their Floyd fandom to be there in a room, you know, like where they are playing and you know and and I'm I'm just greedily drinking in their version of of <laughs> my favorite Sid Barrett song and just like just an amazing thing just for me just kind of a cheat sheet index to their influence on my life as a music listener. Oh, I love that. 
I love, well, I love should we Jen. do a little uh, should we do a little biographical yeah, sketch let's, and kind let's of get, let's get into uh, the band history because I yeah. there's a lot that resonates with me with these guys that I, I want to talk about and their experiences. Okay, so uh, Mission of Burma, we have Clint Conley. He grew up in Darien, Connecticut, which I always now associate with Chloe Sevigny. I feel like she needs like a statue <laughs> in Darien of just like the the perfect like uh, Connecticut to to urban like uh, passenger. Um, but he she moved, is yeah. she is the Connecticut muffin. She's the yeah. <laughs> she's the Connecticut muffin. Long live. I, I, like 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 many Gen Xers, I will never hear Darien and not think about. The uh, Fountains of Wayne song about going to the laser show. Like, uh, we come from Darien. We're going to the planetarium. Like, <laughs> we're going to see the galaxies and the stars with James, Kirk, uh, Cliff, and Lars. You know, like, it's, like, but it's all about going to the laser show at the planetarium. Nice. Oh, that's beautiful. God bless Darien. Uh, Thank you for Clint yeah. Conley. Yes. Productive, productive town. Um, right. So Clint, Clint moved from there to Boston in the fall of 1977 um, to start uh, a cerebral art rock band called Moving Parts. Uh, meanwhile, Roger Miller was born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which obviously has a super rich musical heritage, which we mostly discussed in our Andrew WK episode because um, he, he grew up in uh, uh, Ann Arbor. Of course, uh, you know, Iggy Pop before that. Um, yes, Ann Arbor and- Rock City. Rock City, baby. Um, and so uh, Roger Miller was already suffering from... Uh, tin- it, I kept calling it tinnitus. Is it tinnitus? It sounds very British. T- I, think, I, I always go tinnitus in my head. It has a U at the end, right? I'll, call it, I'll say tinnitus. I'm really bad at pronouncing things. Um, so he, yeah, he was yeah. already having hearing problems uh, from excessive noise exposure because he was in a band uh, in his youth called Sproton Lair, um, <laughs> which is an amazing name. Um, and so he wasn't even planning on rocking when he moved to Boston. Um, and then he saw the ad, of course, for, uh, you know, looking for musicians for moving parts. And it requested someone who could both rock and read music. So he was very much into that. Um, he was, the, these are, these are uh, music, music fearing folk as well as music <laughs> listening folk. My guitar teacher when I was in high school uh, told me the joke. What's the difference between a guitarist and a guitarist who can read music? Well, about yes. 60 grand a year. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um, so that, that band, uh, Moving Parts, did not last very long, but Clint and Roger really hit it off. Um, the, the book describes them listening, uh, I think it was at like the audition, and the Ramones came on the radio, and they started doing the exact same like punky dance, <laughs> which is very sweet. Um, and then they were trying to find a drummer for a new band, Incredibly, they auditioned drummers by doing things like blasting Sun Ra until the drummer left, <laughs> the potential drummer left, which is an interesting way to uh, get someone to join your band. And basically, uh, then, just trying to alienate anybody who is not completely down with whatever they were going for. It clearly worked. That was clearly the right move. It's so funny to think that they would have had this band before Peter Prescott was part of it. It seems like inconceivable that like, seems absolutely inconceivable that it wouldn't always be the three of them. Yeah. It's a very interesting stress test. Like I'm trying, I'm trying to wonder what, what I would, what I would play until someone uh, either walked away or, you know, hang in, hung in there and said, I'm in, I'd have to decide. We'll get to it when we uh, actually start playing some clips, but press the way that Prescott's drumming fits in with their playing it. He like, it's, it's all very interlocked and melodic and, you know, not over fussy way. 
Very good. I'll, I'll play some clips in a bit. Yeah. They said uh, uh, they liked Peter Prescott because he played upside down beats, which I thought was very, that's very Sun Ra, actually, um, to describe things in that way. And then they got connected to Martin Swope, who I was saying before we got on air, it sounds like it should be a British guy, but <laughs> he, he's not British. Um, and he's, you know, like an avant-garde composer, influence type of guy. Um, he And he starts uh, contributing tape loops to a few songs and then he starts contributing tape loops to all the songs. And then uh, one of the band members, I did not note who, uh, said, and then he started appearing on our album covers. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how he That's, that's how, how you know you're joined. in the band. Absolutely. He, uh, he was such a, like, uh, also just like that sort of like sort of, you know, unseen guardian angel figure who's just like sort of hovering outside the band, just like doing those like awesome things with songs. Now that's a band lineup. I, you know, you kind of think that that's going to be I always thought that that was going to be the way bands were from then on because it was such a brilliant move to like because it just it made everything they did so expansive even you know with just the three piece and it you know it it, it was just fantastic. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Martin Swope is my guy. The idea of an, not surprised an offstage engineer slash tape loop guy who is nonetheless considered a fourth man of of the band. Uh, that is uh, something I extremely identify with, and uh, I I very much appreciate him. He is he is also extremely mysterious, uh, in in general ways. As I was telling Molly, I was trying to find like what he ended up doing after the band, and all I could find is that he disappeared to Hawaii, and like nobody nobody has heard about of or any updates from him for years. So it kind of needs uh, to be shout- a mysterious figure, though. I love that. Lots of bands have that with like the people who produce their records. But I yeah. love that, you know, mm-hmm. this was the thing where, like, the sound guy is an artist, you know? Like, yes. <laughs> I, I just love that. And also this enigmatic figure who, like, was never heard from and never never yeah. really glimpsed. I mean, it's it's a real Galaxy Brain band move to yeah. just have the engineer be part of the band. Yeah, and, and yeah. he wasn't on the on the album covers until, like, you know, the band was done. So, so it was a thing where he, it was just this kind of thing like, what exactly is he doing? You know, like, you're listening yeah. to... Academy Fight yeah. Song or Max Ernst or, or Trent Two or something as a kid, and it's like, what? I, that, what is he doing? That's <laughs> all I listen. I mean, I love the songs. The songs have so much power, but all, like ninety percent of my concentration is just listening for where the tape loops are in the song. <laughs> I feel like that could almost like drive you crazy a little. It, bit. A little bit, it does. It, it's almost to the point where at this point it like detracts from my listening emission songs because all I'm trying to do is separate out the tape loop tracks uh, in my head. I feel like that happens if you if you if you know a little bit about something and then you experience the art and all you can think about. I mean, that's like how we keep watching these YouTube videos of like movie stunts. And now all I can when I watch a stunt, all I'm seeing is like, are they wearing pads? How did they fall? When did yes. they cut? Is it is it still this person or is it a different person? When you know, it would probably be more fun for me if I just watched the movie and enjoyed yes. the person getting punched <laughs> and falling out of the I, building. I need to learn to give up and just accept the tape loops. In, just let it wash over psyche. you. Let it wash over you, Chris. Um, also, I feel like I, you know, I completely take for granted the rate, uh, the internet in terms of being able to like look up a guy and like what he does. <laughs> and I can't, I mean, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more, but just like the infrastructure of information of like having to rely so heavily on like liner notes, like lyric sheets, anything they like include in the packaging and then like, you know, zines and publications. Obviously, Rob, you're a writer. and I, I think you mentioned reading a zine. Were you, how, what was your like consumption at least when you were at this age in Boston and where were you finding these? Good Lord. 
were so dependent on zines because they, you know, they would have the information that nobody else would have. But of course, mm-hmm. they were zines, so they came out, you know, twice a year, and you never knew when. And so you oh were always like sort of stopping into the record stores and taking a look to see. And you know, like then a couple times a year, they're you know like the uh, you know a new one of this scene or a new one of that zine, and um, you know, and you never knew when. And it was the kind of thing where like you know, uh, you know, on on the first page saying, yeah, subscriptions still not available. Yes, <laughs> um, but it, it was a nerve wracking thing. But it was like a part of you know for me like my favorite record store in Boston was Second Coming in Cambridge, and like always mm-hmm. like glanced at the rack um for mr burma especially a band that were so resistant to uh to, not just to you know to typical music media you know like they didn't do like conventional interview type of stuff but also mm-hmm. like very resistant to conventional rock imagery you know like mm-hmm. you know the album covers the cover of verses is like peeling wallpaper it's it's not <laughs> you know it's not the four dudes standing against a brick wall you know like yeah, yeah, yeah. um and all the mysteries built into them, you know, like you didn't even know whether you were supposed to call the album Versus or was it VS <laughs> or was it this, you know, and because like everything about them was so mysterious, not in a self-conscious, you know, we are we are cloaked in mystery kind of way, but just, you yeah, know, they're not they're not Jandek or anything. Yes. So um, huge thing in terms of like just, you know, knowing basic information about Mission to Burma. It, it was a couple of years after they broke up. They did this massive interview in in uh, the the most amazing zine around forced exposure and it had like basically like this incredibly long thing and and also just the lack of drama around it that they were just like yeah we had the three guys come over for dinner you know and like and <laughs> even though like they broke up the band because of roger's hearing problems you know they're all still friends and it wasn't like a thing of like oh can they mend benches to do the interview it's like no like they're they're friends they hang out they came over for dinner and talked about their <laughs> band for like all these years and that was like when just a lot of basic information you know, the whole thing with like they were on this Boston label, Ace of Hearts Records with, mm-hmm. you know, Rick Hart. Definitely like when Azarad's book came out, that was the first time we learned a lot about that setup. Very, 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 you know, uh, uh, rickety sort of infrastructure for putting music into the world. Um, yeah. Again, like this is before indie rock is is even an in, in, in idiom. And so there was you're really dependent on zines to find out anything there was to find out about these bands, but, but especially Burma because they were so resistant to that kind of imagery. So that, that, that 1985 forced exposure interview was kind of a thing (laughs) of like, wow, like I finally know who, you know, Rick Hart was and, you know, like what their idea of like Martin Swope's story was like just all this stuff. Also their background. That's where, you know, I first heard about Proton layer that they're really into jazz and everything and of course this is two years after the band broke up you know they were not interested in pushing at career terms they didn't do you know like and even that was you know that was a zine that you had to be in the right place at the right time to find it is very funny like imagining to in this just the way that we consume information about this that you would have to like check in your local record store and maybe a few times a year somebody has printed off the wikipedia page of your favorite of something that you would like to get information of and you could maybe pick up a hard copy of it and always there'd be, you know, like the news updates and it'd be like, okay, this band broke up four months ago. Okay. This band <laughs> broke up five months ago. Okay. This guy's no longer speaking to that guy. Also, okay. This person, they died. Sorry. Like, and it had this whole, like, I mean, I read them now. Like I, you know, I still have my zines around and, and it's funny that 
it's it's still like a, a remarkably you know flimsy sort of mechanism for putting this information out there. However, you know, and and we read those things cover to cover. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. you got a zine; it always had like insultingly tiny print. It always had you know like <laughs> it was always God. Xerox stapled together, a few staples in the spine, tiny, tiny, tiny little print because that made it cheaper to mail and. <laughs> And and you would basically read every word in it. So you'd learn a lot about bands that you didn't care about. And also mm-hmm. this was in the um paying for music days. If, mm-hmm. if the, the younger listeners, there was a time when like to hear any of these bands, you had to uh to know somebody who had their records or you had to to buy them yourself and you had to know where and when you could buy them, because for the most part, these were not distributed records. So yep. even getting your hands on a Missioner Brimmer record outside Boston was an adventure. Fortunately, I was in Boston, the right place to be a Burma fan. But you know, yeah. like it, it was kind of it was only when I got to college that I realized that I I had I, I now had friends who are from around the country who had heard about this band, but like <laughs> they had never heard Academy Fight Song, they'd never heard Revolver. They were listening to my tapes of these songs as if like these were, you know, like precious, you know, like precious cargo from the, you know, the detritus of constantly shifting and, and decaying <laughs> musical information so like it was, it, it was a time when music information when there was very you know we would we would seize on these crumbs and just get every bit of information that there was to get out of them but but it, it was a thing where like even like covering a mission of burma who now are a legendary band but you know in their time outside boston they were more like a rumor <laughs> a myth, so funny a myth. yeah yes the the music friend really was I mean even Chris with you and Nathan like the the person that you like literally had to physically like see and hang out with in order to get access to their physical you know media and now I don't I don't know what the I mean it kind of reminds me of when uh when the AirPods came out and I was like oh damn now you can't even like listen with the the person that you have a crush on like listen to <laughs> your iPod together and you're physically connected by a cord like we truly are just like all floating in space now it's kind of a bummer <laughs> yes the music experience there's lots even, of music even more hyper hyper individualized yeah well, man it, but also like Mr. Robert they were so very much a cassette driven mm. uh, phenomenon like in terms of like if you heard a Mr. Burma song 99 times out of 100 it wasn't because you got lucky and found the record in a record store that did not happen outside boston what happened was uh somebody taped you a song they put a tape on a mix song for you um they they thought that there'd be something romantic about you Mm -hmm. know like putting max ernst on a on a (laughs) mixtape for your crush um uh but you know like that was like pretty much how these songs spread you know like Mm -hmm. and and college radio but you know, there was no, there were no Mishnah Burma videos on MTV. There was no like nationwide airplay hit. There was barely anything that got played outside Boston on any kind of commercial radio. And it was very much a passed from friend to friend kind of thing. So it was mm-hmm. fanzines and, you know, homemade tapes were basically how the music spread around. Amazing. Well, you know, speaking of this, they they record music with uh with Rick Hart from Ace of Hearts, which it sounds like he's a real um like a real kind of artiste in terms of like recording, engineering, packaging. Like he the word that is used is painstaking. Like it just sounds <laughs> like it was a real real process and the, also, the way they, yeah. a, a real baller move to name your record label Ace of Hearts if your last name is Hart. 
I mean, you gotta. Yes. I, I feel like that's a missed opportunity if you leave that on the table. I, I, I have to say that's, that's another one where, you know, the teenage boy in me like kind of like suffered a, a wound, you know, when I found out that the label was called Ace of Hearts because the guy's <laughs> name was It is very Hart. like hair like, metal or something, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Like yeah. it, sh- it should be Ace of H-A-R-R-R-T-Z, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> something like Memorial Art Punk. Yeah. Yep. So, Shot yeah, they, through hearts or something. Yes. Shot through the heart. Um, so yeah, they, they record, um, and they are like, I mean, as you describe Rob, like very, you know, the, the Boston success was there. The external success is, is not there just simply because the infrastructure is not there. So they're getting radio play within Boston. Um, there's also, I I didn't realize this was a thing, but, uh, in college radio, there were like radio tapes, which were recordings made exclusively for college radio programming, which again, like this idea of just kind of like, you know, smushing things together in these sort of uh, custom bespoke ways and having it be super local is, seems very emblematic of what Mission of Burma was, was doing. Every, um, every college radio station had those. The local bands would do those. And also those were invariably eight track tapes. You know, uh-huh. they, were, they were called carts, short for cartridge, but like you wouldn't call them an eight track tape in the studio, but that's what they were. They were, they were yeah. eight track tapes. So it's weird to think that like Mission of Burma is like, the foundation of their myth as a recording band is that they gave a college student a college station an eight-track tape recording of Peking Spring, which like a song, <laughs> yes. also like the very like you know very proto indie move of like having a song this great that you know that you put on a tape for a radio station and you don't put it on your records because that would be too <laughs> yes. obvious. That would be pandering. So like yes, so you know that was definitely a thing where like when I went to college, I was like, oh wow, even my friends who are like super into Mission of Burma have never heard Peking Spring because... Which was the local hit. Yes, it was the local hit. It would have seemed, it would have been pandering to actually put that on Signals, Calls, and Marches or something. It would have been just too easy. <sighs> so funny. Yeah, apparently that, that song was uh, MIT's radio station's top played song of 1979. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Should we, should we, listen, should we listen, listen to a little... Yeah, yeah. let's play some what a song. Uh, Peking Spring. Now that's some proggy bass. It is. Mm something about the uh the texture of these songs where it doesn't seem like it should be as catchy as it is you know between the abrasiveness of like the bass and guitar lines and then the singing and then when it hits the chorus you're like damn this is really catchy you know this chord that chord there like it's like only a burma chord
leave this off the album. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah. Of course. Way yeah, too yeah. easy. Way too easy. <laughs> they're they're also very good at the uh, the background. Yes. Oh my god. That's throughout so all good. of their songs. Yes, it's it's really an amazing. I mean, it's funny that like I was only hearing it years later as an adult. Like you know, after I'd heard the Perubu to realize, oh wow, these guys were really into Perubu, but. Uh, it was the kind of thing where, like, they were so into um, this Detroit and Cleveland punk rock that barely got distributed outside Detroit and Cleveland. So, you know, when I finally got to hear stuff like, you know, Electric Eels or, or The Mirrors or Rocket from the Tombs, like, I understood a lot of, you know, what Burma had taken from them. But again, like, that mm-hmm. was stuff that was never distributed outside its city and had to be passed from friend to friend on tape. Basically, like like Burma were a few years later. Perubu, another uh, a Ohio excellence. B uh, band that has a a fourth guy who I guess plays keyboard, but really just makes noise. Yeah, totally. It, you could definitely tell. I mean, again, like I I didn't hear Ubu until many 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 years after I was a Burma fan. So like like I was like, oh okay, Alan Ravenstone is kind of like you know like they've got a swope, you know like yeah exactly. He's he's swoping hard. <laughs> He's swoping very hard. Um, <laughs> and listen to a song like you know, Heart of Darkness, the very first Ubu recording, and it's like, yeah, okay. Burma definitely like got a lot of inspiration from this sound. And even like listening to Peking Spring Now, I can hear it. But like the things that they did that were so like utterly off the wall original, they had so many chords that no other band had. That that chord in the um in, in Peking Spring, where it's like, yeah, I don't know, but I've been told. And it's like it's kind of thing. I was like, I feel like I've heard that in like six or seven Burma songs and no other band has that chord, you know, like, and there's a lot of things they do that are like that. And like you said, it's like, it's very abrasive in some ways, but like the texture is such that it's able to be both uh, just very, very catchy and very melodic with all this stuff Mm -hmm. going on musically, despite what, you know, what the 14 year olds in the audience, including me, like might have even heard primarily as just kind of a hard rocking, you know, anthem kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Yep. Well, they the other notable uh, fact from their early early times is that they sold. I, it's just amazing the the single that they did that was Academy Fight Song and Max Ernst. It sold out. It's uh, seventy five hundred copy pressing in weeks, which is just like you got to think. You know, there's like seven thousand kids running around in Boston being like, "This is the shit." Like, <laughs> yeah, we we were just we just did a uh, Rick Rubin, and they were talking about some. I'm not gonna be able to remember it now, but some very early hip hop record uh, that they pressed that was like it sold like a hundred thousand copies in New York City, which it's is like Taylor Rock. It's yours, right? Yes, yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I it just it's it's you know we're in such stream zone now of just yeah. like the idea and especially it's always like millions of streams like fractions of cents from spotify but like the idea that there is like a hundred thousand like copies or like 7500 copies of a single physically that are like making it around boston i thought i don't know it's just mind-blowing to me yeah def- definitely like the biggest like change in music in terms just like in terms of like being a fan of in terms of like the um the 80s 90s and now is just the idea of scarcity of music being like yeah. such like, but but you know to even to hear Burma you had to you know you had to be in the right place at the right time you know to read these fanzines to even find out that these fanzines existed you had to have you know like you said Molly the music friend you know like I I had a fanzine mm-hmm. friend you know like my uh. friend my friend Jane who was like Burma were her favorite band and she would you know she would say uh you know 
forced exposure. You would you would love this magazine, you know, or like you know, mm-hmm. like you know, this scene, that scene. Um, you had to have a friend passing those on. Um, my friend Jane, by the way, I have to point out this. She was in my French class, uh, <laughs> freshman year of college, and like did not know each other and like did not you know like communicate at all. And once we were asking in French, you know, like uh, I, my French has gone a little bit. So, but it's the question like. What is your favorite band? Like, yeah. And she said Mission of Burma, and I was like, "What the fuck?" Like, it, it's funny because she said that in French. I'm sorry, he's perfect. Le, le Mission du Burma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, but it was the kind of thing where, like, the teachers are like, "Who had two uh, music uh, préféré?" You know, like, and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and just she's a Burma. Like, and, like afterwards, I was like, "Excuse me, did you say Mission of Burma?" It was so mind blowing to encounter a stranger in college who had already not just heard this band, but like loved them. And it turned out, you know, she'd seen them so many times. And, and it was a thing where, um, you know, like having that friend who would pass music on to you or, you know, make you tapes or, or pass zines on to you, you know, that was the only way for information to travel from one person to the next. And so, yeah. you know, I, so it's, it's funny that to, to think of Academy Fight Song and Max Ernst as like that single totally selling out, um, I, you know, I, I, I taped those songs off the radio. I, I, I had, <laughs> I did not have my hands on one of those, those scarce copies, but it's so funny yeah. that the idea of music as scarcity is such a mm. lost concept. And, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't even want, you know, like new music fans now to incorporate that kind of, you know, in, in, in no. economy. I totally don't think it added romance or coolness or anything to, to music. <laughs> I think it's the opposite. I like that everybody can hear stuff now if you just tell them about it. But but it's so funny that like Burma was something, you know, it was like a word of mouth thing and, and people mm-hmm. often heard about the band for years even before they got to hear it. So like just, you know, like even people who may have heard Academy Fight Song like on a sampler or something, it was like, wait till you hear the flip side. Max Ernst, <laughs> you know, like um, and, and it, it was a kind of thing where like they were that kind of band that had that kind of that kind of hardcore bass. I love the idea that they sold out that entire single, like in Boston. It was kind of a non fungible right. token, but it was right. <laughs> a record. Like, it was, ha, ha. oh well, my god! And we'll, and we'll <laughs> get into so this, true. but it is it is funny that they can be like there is such a dichotomy where you can be so massively for a band of that level successful regionally, and then just not never be able to translate it to something else. But we should move forward with the uh, their bio to get to that part you know, sell out 7,500 copies. Okay, great. Let's get some more going. No, we can't. (laughs) (laughs) Just like the the distribution, uh, you know, was kind of impossible. Like they're talking in the book about, uh, you know, even if you could get the album distributed to uh, record stores, sometimes they just simply wouldn't pay you. Um, So just like the business is like kind of not, there's no infrastructure at all. Uh, Meanwhile, like the idea of going national is like not quite a thing yet. And, you know, mainstream magazines are uh, not really covering this kind of music consistently. Um, Another thing that they had as they were kind of like gaining a little bit of steam locally is that they were alienating people who went to see them live expecting to hear the sounds on their records because when they did things live, it was much more, it sounds like it was just much more chaotic, much more raw, like much more just very loud. Um, I guess it sounds like volume, even with uh, uh, Roger's uh, hearing problem is that, is that they just like crank things like crazy and were playing around with like, even the way that like the sound was moving around in the space. Absolutely. But unfortunately, as we've talked about on like past episodes of this mini series, like, 
you know, when you buy a ticket to see a band and you think you're going to see one thing or you want to see one thing and something different happens, like that, you as the customer is not, you're not going to be happy. And it's not necessarily the band's, uh, you know, especially a band like this, they're not going to be like, okay, yeah, let's pander. Let's, let's, uh, let's do this. (laughs) We've heard your feedback and we're taking it into consideration. Yes. Yes. We thank you for, yes. Your, your call is important to us. Yes. Right. Um, there was no, also like, it's funny that there was an element of, of the Burma fan base that was like, yeah, the live show is the real music, the records. It's, you know, it's it's, so funny. Like it was like, just kind of funny. Like they saw the records as the watered down pop version of, of the thing, which is like, but also like this being another, like, you know, huge difference in music now is that it's not like a thing where people were listening to the shows, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like we do now and saying like, well, but you know, the 61582 fame and fortune is like so much better than, you know, like the <laughs> mm-hmm. 31381 version of Peking Spring. It was like the thing of like being able to listen to a lot of shows and compare like the sort of, you know, the way, you know, a Grateful Dead fans pioneered mm-hmm. it with their tapes. But, uh, and, and, but, you know, that kind of thing of like being able to compare live shows as competing aesthetic objects that, you know, that just didn't, didn't compute back then. So Burma were doing all this stuff that they knew that people were only going to experience in the room and nobody was ever going to hear it again. Yep. And apparently they did not use a set list either, which is, you know, just adds to the chaos. I mean, the, uh, apparently, according to Azarad, the usual snipe about them was, uh, they'd be really good if only they all played the same song at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> which I'm sure that maybe felt that way <laughs> sometimes. I don't, depending. I don't know. But like it signals calls and marches, which was a really, you know, like uh, for lack of a better word, organized record, you know, like mm-hmm. the songwriting on that record is phenomenal. And the songs, they also have those, you know, there's weird Burma chords. So like fame and fortune sounds like almost like on one level, it's trying to be a jangly power pop song, but on another, it's just like got all these, weird textures like i understand now that that was part of you know their classical background but mm-hmm. um but it was like just really a song that could be very eccentric but very melodic at the same time um the spinanes a band that i like totally love um they did a fantastic version of fame and fortune which was you know just like uh rebecca gates from the spinanes just doing a you know acoustic guitar basically like voice and guitar version of Fame and Fortune. It was so great because it sounded so perfect. And and to, to think of that as like such a, you know, like loud, abrasive song. But, you know, it's a song that she could play on her acoustic guitar and sing in tune. And it was every bit as as powerful, you know, like mm-hmm. they were they were just like phenomenal songwriters in, in addition to being phenomenal improvisers. Yeah. You know, we we talked a bit last episode about the idea of being music punk versus social punk. Music punk be- meaning, you know, uh, you know, not adhering to any particular rules or regulations or not doing the same thing twice, uh, not doing what people expected. Um, and I do think that that was true with Mission of Burma too. Uh, Prescott at the time, uh, uh, you know, the, the eight, turn of the eighties or whatever. He said, my idea of this band is to fuck up whatever anybody thinks we're going to do. If they think we're a dance band, we're not. If they think we're an art band, then we're not. See, Conley chimed in. We're nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I so love I think that. I think they did that the 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 music punk thing of like I I don't know I just, I think it's important to point out that like yeah the the idea of like punk 
from like the late seventies to the early eighties really did turn into a haircut. And yeah. like then, but there were still all these bands that were kind of like chipping away at that and being like, no, punk is actually just uh, doing something that you didn't think that we were going to do. It's about defying expectations and taking and being taking joy in defying expectations and like thinking it's fun. Absolutely. It had a very mind expanding impact on its audience. Just, you know, in that, you know, like even like for a kid like me coming in expecting, you know, something that sounded like the clash and getting a lot of, you know, these like Sid Barrett chords, you know, or, or, you know, like fantastic book that I highly recommend um, that has a lot of stuff about Mishnah Burma in Boston in those days is um, a, a book by Michael Patrick McDonald called Easter Rising, which is like basically mm-hmm. about being a, a, a punk rock fan in Boston in the early 80s. Um, but it's, it's, it's not as cheesy as that concept might sound. Um, <laughs> but it's just incredibly beautiful. Like he's, he's from the perspective of a hardcore kid who's like very dogmatic um, and very politicized. Mm-hmm. And Burma are like these kind of like older uncles who hang out on the scene. And <laughs> everybody feels like, these guys are kind of like what we're into, but really kind of not what we're into. And that <laughs> just like in Burma, like in part because of their just immense personal benevolence and, and warmth and charm that I guess we'll mm-hmm. get into later. But infamously nice, kind hearted people who like <laughs> treated people well. Um, but so that they were welcome everywhere. So like they were like the only uh, he mentions in this book that they were the only band that they liked that seemed like. Everybody was it, like it was really open minded of them to be into a band that were so many different types of things because, you know, mm-hmm. like they didn't do, you know, uh, hardcore songs about, you know, like, you know, kicking over the government. But <laughs> it was but they were songs that that, you know, they definitely felt like this band that was like older and artsier was nonetheless kindred spirits. And they yeah. ended up on bills with these people. Like they, I think they were on a bill with Black Flag at, at one point and there's, that's not the same type of music at all. But I feel like at that point, the scene is so small still that it's just like, you are both loud, not normal bands. Yes, so exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Play together and don't, don't hurt each other when you dance to, <laughs> yeah. to each other's music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the, the opening acts uh, fans don't beat up the uh, headliners band <laughs> and vice versa. Right, right. Um, sp- speaking of playing live, I have to share this anecdote from the book, which is to me just uh, Chris and I both think it's amazing that they went on a tour, which was not an easy thing in uh, the winter of 1980, which was not an easy thing to do at the time, just in terms of infrastructure of being able to find venues and like places to book them. Um, but the, the, ent- the entire tour was conducted via Eastern Airlines, which offered a $300 flat rate for a month of domestic travel as long as you flew out of Boston or uh, uh, Atlanta. So they so good. They did 11 so cities in a month playing 200 person capacity clubs and their hub was Atlanta. So they weren't in the van, like, you know, they didn't get in the van. They got on a plane. Yeah. What What was wrong with travel at this time that they were just like, yeah, $300 go crazy. The, and the completing the image in the book is when he talks about how basically every third day they would, they would trudge back into the Eastern Airlines lounge in the Atlanta airport to like sleep there. Yeah. So it would be like one night out, play at the ve- venue presumably stay in the city, fly back to the Atlanta airport, sleep in the Atlanta airport, out to a new city, presumably sleep in the city, back to the Atlanta airport for (laughs) a month straight. 
Well, with different climates, like they would yeah. be flying to like, you know, one place might be snowing and then the next place would be, you know, a heat wave and they're just doing it all I just, in order. The, it's insane. The image of these like wiry, like Boston band nerds, uh, like trudging back into the lounge every 72 hours for a month with progressively more beat up musical equi- equipment and progressively more rundown like visages on them is so funny to me. It's such a funny way to run a tour. Absolutely. And and the idea of like, you know, going from like Bangor to Burlington via yeah, Atlanta, exactly. you know, like <laughs> that's, I, I just, that's a beautiful thing. But that, but also like they, you know, because they were so mysterious and people didn't know like where they were coming from or what their background was. And that was a time when, you know, music was so generationally divided, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, so the idea that these guys had like, old 60s skeletons in their closet it would have been horrifying to you know a lot of their fans if if we'd known but uh the (laughs) idea that they were putting themselves through this like kind of you know like grueling abuse you know to play music for people again as you said when there's no infrastructure for their you know for there aren't any place there aren't any clubs in any town where you go see the burma like bands you know because like you said the loud not normal stuff so like yeah I mean, you think about those tours and you imagine, you know, like how many blues bands they must have been on the bill with. And, you know, like it's, it's yeah, it's just as funny as it is to imagine the the Eastern Airlines uh, support staff marveling at who these weird kids were as they walked in. It must have been equally weird for the kids in like Detroit watching their show and hearing them offhandedly say like, oh, yeah, we were in Atlanta light last night and being like, how? how? Yeah. What? Did they, how, who are these guys? Yep. And they, they are not playing, these are not like triumphant shows. They, it's pointed out that usually the only person who knew who they were was the person who booked them. Um, And even that, that is, that's somewhat tenuous. They, they shared a a terrible, I mean, amazing anecdote that they played a bar in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and it was clown night. And so people dressed like clowns kept coming up to the stage, slipping them notes that said things like, do you know any Devo songs? <laughs> and then finally s- slipping them a-, a last note that's just like, please, please stop. But to me, I'm just like, clown night in Montgomery, Alabama. These seem like people who are kind of down for whatever, like get into it. Also, just it, such yeah. an amazing anecdote. Clown night in 1981 in the Montgomery, Alabama bar where... Again, another surprising thing about this, which is a side in the story, that they were big Devo fan. Like that Devo had that much cultural penetration into Clown Night in Montgomery, Alabama. I love that. I love that. And and just like the idea that, you know, like, yeah, we've got this like avant-garde band that, you know, people are going to remember and talk about in these hushed, reverent tones like 40 years from now. But at the moment, actually... Um, we're not going over too well with the clowns of Montgomery, Alabama. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're, we're, the on, the on local the clown, clown charts, scene. Yeah, on the clown yes. charts, we're ranking very low right now. Oh, man. With, it's clown night know, every night. The, the clowns <laughs> loved us in Chapel Hill, guys. You know, like... <laughs> This is uh maybe this is very pro or like, proto or the scenes uh, uh the seeds of what would then become a uh, ICP lifestyle <laughs> maybe mm, maybe interesting. so because one image in my I have uh, in my head of Clown Night is like a, a goofy thing like local you know middle aged couples do like almost like rodeo clown or some something like that and sure, the other sure. thing that I have in my mind is like real proto young dirtbags who would then become juggalos a generation later who are like, yeah, we, lo- we like to get real messed up and dress like clowns. 
That sounds awesome. I, I guess, but but also you think about 1981, probably a lot of, you know, scene wars and the clowns, you know, like you've got <laughs> yes, the birthday party clowns versus the rodeo clowns. And yeah. like, they don't go to each other's bars and like a mime walks in. They're like, get that guy out of here. Like, it's, you know, it's hard to sort of, it, it took a while to sort of bring peace, you know, like in the clown right. making the clown making scene. Um, right. And of course, the the mime the mime saw uh, Mission of Burma, uh, but they they just didn't know how to tell them that they liked him, so they just never knew. <laughs> that's they kept waving. It, yeah, and... that's, that's when he realized he had a hearing problem. Like, yeah. right. they, they kept <laughs> trying works. to walk against the wind to express their fondness for his music. <laughs> um, but, but there's something about I, also like. The idea, like in terms of their extreme localness, it's kind of funny to think of how, you know, Burma shows in Boston were this, you know, ritual that, you know, like they had all these different audiences in Boston, you know, whether it was the BU meathead dudes who were like yelling for Revolver and Academy all night or, you know, like the artists or, you know, like the jazz people, the psychedelic people, the hardcore kids, everybody who was there for, you know, to, to grab onto every aspect of what Burma did. But once they go outside Boston, it's like, okay, clowns are not feeling it, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> to, to be so huge in Boston, like even on an underground mystique kind of level, and mm-hmm. then to be so nothing outside of that, you know, like that's that's how slow news traveled back then. It's like it's 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 almost like the the body of America is like rejecting them and pushing <laughs> yeah, them back. T- totally. like you can you this can only <laughs> exist here. You cannot take this anywhere else. And we, there, we'll talk more. It seems like almost every a uh, gig story outside of Boston is a bad story in this chapter. Absolutely. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know, God knows, God knows what the clowns had to say about, you know, the sound man doing tape loops, you know? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Can you, I, can you even imagine describing that guy's deal, Martin's deal to the sound guy in Montgomery, Alabama, the Montgomery, Alabama clown night being like, so where's your mixing board? And be like, I, I mean, I... I guess it's behind the bar there. Okay, so our guy needs to set up there, and he's going to need a little space because he's got four cassette players. Now, in addition to the four cassette players, he's going to need to spool out some tape alongside the bar, so we need to make sure it's a dry... Sur- and just being like, what are you... Yeah. So it's you're, cla- man, it's clown night. What are you doing? Yeah. You're producing this, Chris. You, I can. You've got so much uh, empathy for this tape guy. Be like, totally. we got it. We we got to get the flat surface. It's got to yeah, be yeah. cleared <laughs> off. We got to set it. Like, we have to respect Swope. Yes. Respect Swope's Re- art. Respect Swope. Yes. yes. We just have one thing. When when I honk this horn that I've got protruding from my abdomen, could you do a, a sound loop of that, please? Yes. <laughs> and just have my little... <laughs> <laughs> Wow, to to be rejected from Clown Night, I feel like they would just you know squirt the flower at you, <laughs> right. as opposed to you know getting getting gobbed uh, yeah. in, in the Black Flag audience of people Come just on, throwing you know yeah. bags of shit at you. <laughs> We're all getting into our car and leaving. All right, <laughs> forty of us in one car. I love the image of instead of the UK, the gobbing, the spitting, it's um, a, a crowd full of of people with little flowers. Yeah, uh, I love shooting that. Yeah. All shooting together. That's that's oh. totally. I, you know, oh, we, man. we missed a lot when we missed, you know, the indie clown crossover days. But, <laughs> but, Molly but, has Molly has independent of this anecdote. This anecdote came up after Molly told me this, that when we can go back to bars that Molly uh, wants to make clown night happen. She wants to dre- go to a bar gr- dressed as a clown. I think it would be fun. I know. And it's not a Joker thing. And, you know, no, it's, it's not, not a it's not a, um, you know, the, the Stephen King or whatever. Like, I just think, you know, dressing clowns dress very like comfortably. You know, it's it's nice, like floppy outfits. Like, I just think it could be fun. 
A little, a little fun, a little zany. I'm, we'll see. I'm, I'm so desperate to go out to bars again. I would gladly like. I'd, I'd give it a shot. I'd give it. A, okay. I'd, I'd have an We're open mind about cloud night. I That's I have the, the very sign I need. Yeah, I, I have the very stereotypical Gen X phobia of clowns. They just like mm. they really really scare me. Like it, <laughs> they really do, and it's like yeah, I can't even. It's, it's difficult. Well, you're it's so invited to clown that rabble when we when we throw it. Yes. Well, ex- exposure exposure therapy. Uh, yes, I look f- I look forward to getting over my clown thing. You know, like in this safe space for you know for people with different different different, <laughs> different clown phobias, yeah. different clown journeys that, yes. that that have intersected in this in this yes. room. Yes. But but you, but you think of like a record like Signals, Calls, and Marches, which is full of songs that you know, if if they had a mechanism to be played on the radio. Certainly could have been bangers, you know, like obviously mm-hmm. there's some abrasive sonic textures on that record, but you kind of feel like if, you know, if if the infrastructure was there to put some of these songs on, you know, late night rock radio that, that you know, a song like Academy or Fame and Fortune or Revolver or Peking Spring would certainly find its people, you know, but there, there just was no mechanism for that. So they made a record that really, you know, Anybody who liked guitar rock could basically come in and love that record. But mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was, you hate to say ahead of its time, but, you know, in, but it was ahead of its time in part because it really created a lot of what came afterwards, you know, like a few years later, you know, whether it's uh, Sonic Youth or Husker Du or R.E.M., all these bands that were taking direct inspiration from Mission of Burma had created mm-hmm. an environment in which Bands like that had a better shot at finding their people, but you know, Burma, Burma were the pioneers who just—they were—they were out there facing the clowns all alone. You know? <laughs> uh, let's let's listen to the record yeah. version of "That's When I Reach for My Revolver." Great. Here we go. Mission of Burma Chord, the one who resolved on that revolver. Yeah. <laughs> almost like there's a regular way like there's a straight way to do it yeah. and then they just like tweak it a little bit and it makes it that much more you know you're, it creates a little bit more like friction or something which is exciting totally like yeah like 
they're all sort of, you know, like right on the border of much more conventional chords to get the, you know, like the quiet, loud, quiet, you know, like mm -hmm. build up, you know, like big melodramatic ba -ba 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 into the chorus. Like it, 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 it's still, you know, an air guitar banger as is, but mm -hmm. they really could have, you know, like you said, they could have taken a much more direct route. Like, um, but it's so like, and, and, and so full of details that you even like listening to it for 40 years, you know, like still like, like this incredibly weird bass solo. <laughs> the great four-fronted bass band. They're all the all the bass stuff going on in this is is so fun to listen to. It's whether it's like his big chordal bass parts where he's almost just playing like a second guitar part on bass, or like all the little melodic things that he's doing. This is a just strange. a melodic bass. Uh, this is just a great time for melodic bass with yeah. the, with all of these people that are in this band. And I'm like, what happened? We got to bring yeah. that back. Tell, uh, who's, who's the last band left? Tell Maroon 5. Let's get Maroon 5 on yeah, this. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to bl blame, blame Flea for this, but I kind of want to blame Flea for being both the Go pinnacle off. of the bass superstar and then also being kind of a clownish enough figure to ruin it for other people. Like so, you, so big and so iconic that people yeah. are like, well, I don't want to do like a flea. Yeah, I'm not. Thing. I'm not like a flea guy. I'm. I'm hanging in the background. I'm, I'm cool. a little more I'm low key yeah. than that. Yeah, I'm a little low key. But like, I mean, not. This is just not like, that I don't love flea, but you know, that's like kind yeah. of the cul-de-sac of a certain type of like, uh, base baseman as co-frontman. You know. I mean, but like you listen, to, like in, in this bass solo in the middle of this song, the guitarist is suddenly just kind of like riffing in the background so that you know like clint can do this like incredibly melodic bass solo and it's like wow that's pretty much the opposite of what you know if you were taking sensible advice from people who could tell you how to get <laughs> a, a slightly yeah. weird song on the radio they'd say okay first thing like the guitar solo part why do you have the guitar sort of like in the back just sort of doing support chords <laughs> while the bass plays the solo that's that's you know that's not how it's done around here and yep. it's so funny that like this is a song where like none of these things sound like they're obscurantist moves and none of them sound off-putting when you're listening to it. Mm -hmm. But they, they, they're able to take all these, you know, like different approaches to, to make, you know, an astoundingly compelling and direct song. Certainly the most famous song. Uh, remember when uh, Moby covered this song in the 90s and he had to change the lyrics because, you know, people were a lot woker about gun violence by then. So he had to change the chorus to... <laughs> That's when I realize it's over. Like, oh man, <laughs> sad, a sad, a yeah. sad day for like for Bermuda. See, like seeing that on MTV with you know basically no warning was an extremely <laughs> traumatizing. Yes, yeah. an extremely traumatizing day. <laughs> oh my god, the um, amazing detail from the release of Signals, Calls, and Marches is that for the lyric sheet. Uh, Sw Swope was in charge and he took all of the words in all of the songs and alphabetized them. And so you would have to kind of pick it out <laughs> yourself to figure out what was said. Uh, I, if anyone ha has one of those, I feel like that's probably a sweet collector's item. But this oh yeah, I would love it. If anybody has like a photograph or can find a, a lyric sheet from uh, Signals, Calls, and Marches, would love also, to see that. Also, a lot of work to do that yes. in 1981. It's not yeah. like, I mean... Maybe he used a TRS-80, you know, like, but, like <laughs> but but still a lot of work to a lot harder work than actually just like putting the dang lyrics on the dang sleeve of the dang right. album. Like instead, like 
you know, doing it as this alphabetical melange. And and like nothing, it doesn't. I mean, it is in its own way purposely obscurist to keep the the to do the lyric sheet like that. But there's something about the band's whole aesthetic where it doesn't seem like it's unnatural for them to do that. You're like, oh yeah, of course, that's how Mission to Burma would present their lyrics. Absolutely. Yeah, they're a little bit. They they got the. I mean, they they you know named their a song after like a, a an artist. They're like artsy guys. Yeah, I mean, like of, museum of boys. I mean, especially because we're going to do like Mission of or not Mission. I keep missing these up because they're most both MI words, but Mm -hmm. we're going to do Minor Threat tomorrow. And I think that they're a good dichotomy because Mission of Burma is like the most art, quote unquote, art rock of of these like early bands. They have like the most artistic impulses in Minor Threat are the most like immature in their own way and like a good way. You know, they're much more like literally teenagers. Um but yeah, it's a pretty mission, literal expression for them versus maybe more of a symbolic one. Yeah, mission, mission has, has like, I mean, uh, Roger's an art, art school guy, like a music school guy. They they have that kind of like tie to a more, I don't know what, like a talking heads background or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, but while still, you know, keying in very much to to this muscular, as I say again, like punk uh, sound. Like versus compared to this, like. Not you know it 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 doesn't have the bangers necessarily that that if they had wanted to make a more radio friendly record it's certainly like a compelling record in in terms of 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 the bangers but it doesn't have that sort of uh, you know a radio station that played Revolver or Academy couldn't necessarily play the songs on on verses because they were less uh, less formed in in, in song like structures. Uh, there mm-hmm. are certainly like you know, bangers like that's how I escape my certain fate and just, you know, like, but it's m- more of a, you know, more of a headphone record. <laughs> yeah, especially songs like Trem 2. I want to play both those songs in a little bit, but let's do a little more of the bio before we get to them. Well, the I think the lead into um, verses is like there was an opportunity. And I think we'll we'll see this kind of throughout the book of like. What if we were a bigger band? Like, what if we tried to like, what what, what if we, me, you know, shot picture, for something bigger? Let me imagine a scenario. Wonder if people liked us. Well, yeah. <laughs> what, what if people liked us or even just knew about us? They don't even need to like us. Um, so they, they sent a copy of Signals, Calls, and Marches to Warner Brothers with the rationale that if they signed Gang of Four, then maybe they were at least kind of cool. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's makes not sense. a bad, especially like hearing this music, I'm like, I get it. I, I would get that if you're like, okay, if you're down with them, like maybe you could be down with us. And they basically said, I think the only song that they liked was um, That's When I Reach For My Revolver. Like they wanted like a bunch of those. And the, of course... They said, you know, no, of course not. We and then from then, we've, we got one, one of one. Uh, but they, from then on, I think what characterized the rest of their, you know, reign was not like not having, as uh, um, uh, Prescott said, the light at the end of the tunnel. The idea that like if you only worked hard enough or you went, became commercial enough or whatever, that you would make it big. So they were kind of like operating at that point on like how, that, which I think led to verses of like what. What, let's just be what we want to be and not what we think people like. Um, not that they were doing a ton of that before, but I think maybe there's a little bit more of a commitment once that door kind of closed with a, a major label. Sure. And also like MTV, like not really existing at this point. Like mm-hmm. uh, that. So like when just a couple years later, REM came out with murmur and that's a thing where like MTV could play REM a ton in 1983 and, and especially in 1984. And, uh, there was a lot of like REM stuff that they could play on the late night 
you know, specialty shows like The Cutting Edge. But, you know, Radio Free Europe like went right into MTV rotation because MTV had 24 hours a day to fill. So, you know, a, a band <laughs> like Burma would have had no trouble at all getting on MTV a couple of years later. But I, I was thinking, Rob, not to interrupt, but I, that the the other band that I could think of that kind of hits those mission chords is R.E.M. When they like resolve the uh, end of a line down a little bit like Mission does, that 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 is the thing that was popping into my head when you were identifying that specific like sonic uh, sound. Yeah, it's it, it's an excellent example. Like, uh, I, I think that's I, I guess that's probably Mills. Like, I think he was the guy who knew the chords. <laughs> <laughs> there's an anecdote in uh in the book where uh, towards the end i don't know if we're skipping ahead here molly but like maybe when mission was out on their last one of their last big tours mm -hmm. that they don't know if it's true or not but i it, one of the guys says that he he swears that mm -hmm. as they were like pulling out of a venue uh they could see rem pulling into a venue like maybe they were doing the afternoon show and rem was doing the late show in like a nicer van with nicer equipment and just kind of like knowing REM and like respecting them, but like in seeing them pass by, kind of know in their heart that it was over, that that REM had like yeah. passed by and like done, was about to do all the things that they could have done at some point. Yeah, it was in Atlanta and uh, <laughs> Mission and Burma were playing like a, uh, a, a desolate club while REM was playing like a pretty crowded theater. And that, yeah, they they shared, like they're like I could have sworn I saw Mike Mills staring out out the tour bus window or the van window, just being like, uh, that that was it. The the ships were passing in the night, like they they were on to bigger and better things, and kind kind of like, why are we getting that? Like we're good too. If they, I mean, that's it's a great story. I, I I love like the resonance of that. Like not even not even the clowns came to see them in Atlanta. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Hundred percent. They spent so much time in the airport. Yes, after after working the clown community, you know, like that's the thanks they get is you know like a hundred percent of Atlanta's clown community decides to get in solidly with with REM. But but uh. they were exactly the kind of band that that if, if, if Burma had stuck around for even two more years, like they would have been like on a completely different level. That like REM were a band that like very much uh, was into. Uh, bigging up bands that you know that they loved that were kindred spirits the first time you know any of us heard about you know the Minutemen or Husker Du or mm -hmm. the replacements it was REM talking about them or REM bringing them you know as their opening band you know mm -hmm. like REM definitely saw it in terms of you know anything we can do for these bands is good for us all and you know just and, and so it's it's impossible to to overstate the impact of rem on just mm -hmm. a band like burma finding its audience like it would have been two years ago it would have been like oh this is for you know this is for people who like rem but you know a little harsher you know like um yeah and you compare like i mean rem just had a very different sound from burma to me like the comparison like if you compare husker do to burma like they're doing so much of the same stuff sonically and emotionally and and it's so much like similarity in terms of their audience and their influences, but you know, Husker Du came, they they stuck around till after the REM era and they were able to partake in that. Whereas, you know, Burma just stopped right before right before the REM gold rush began. Yeah. I'm just imagining the the indie rock or the the indie movie version of this, which is that one haggard flight attendant from Atlanta comes to see their show. <laughs> and she's just like, I've been watching you guys for the past, uh, you know, year, and uh, yeah. feel, I feel bad for you. And 
you know, whatever. Yeah, then, <laughs> and then she and Clint get married or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, they get a cup of coffee. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. There, there'd be the scene where, like, the one flight attendant who yelled at them and made them check their bags, <laughs> they make eye contact, and they see her just at the back of the bar, not saying yep. anything. Yes. She yep. came to the show. She came to the show. Yes. Cam- Cameron Crowe, get on this. This is, yes. like, right, right in the wheelhouse. <laughs> she would say, Cameron you know, Crowe, please make the Mission of Burma story. <laughs> yes, totally. And, 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 and she would have said, you know, still overweight with your luggage but (laughs) that's a darn good song (laughs) very good um should we listen to something from versus yes the two ones that i would want to play off versus are the ballad of johnny burma is very good but that's how i escape my certain fate is probably my favorite of their songs and also maybe one of my favorite song titles of all time Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like the hard one and then I gotta play Trem 2 but I wanna play the Trem 2 version from uh, a fairly good recording of I believe one of their last shows in Boston so the I wanna Bradford play some live show? stuff yeah, yeah I believe yeah, the, the, you yeah, were, we were some, just talking about that one right yeah there's some really good uh, recordings of that on YouTube so I'm gonna play uh, off the album that's how I escape my certain fate and then we'll listen to Trem 2 from the live show that's how I escape my certain fate love when he screams to go from the uh, first chorus into the second verse. Uh, no wonder I like this song. It's obviously the 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 like one of the you know wilder up tempo or tempo or like straight up punk songs in there. Uh, but uh, another this, this sounds like song. SST Beatles to me. Yeah, totally, totally. Oh my god, that's the perfect description. If only. You should go back in time and and write this ad copy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wait, I don't even think we got to these parts. Escape. Like the melodies here are so so great. Honesty and actors is mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just finish this. This is only two minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> Certain things. When he's doing those, like, bass octaves. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So good. Anyway. It's great. Love that, love that song. Just so, such a great energy in it. You, like, really get that. Uh, you know the, the 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 punkness of it, while still having some of the the you know operatic uh, art rock stuff in the in the vocals. It's it's great. I love that song. Okay, and another Clint Conley song. He wrote the Bops. You know, like mm-hmm. we're, we're we're gonna hear a Miller song, like in you know, like in a minute. But but it it's amazing that like Conley was such a like you know when he wanted to write a Bop, he he had the Bops <laughs> at his fingertips. Molly, like. Cook, 
SST Beatles is the perfect description. It's like really kind of perfect for it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, is there is there narrative to bring us up to this Bedford show, Molly? The, uh, uh, the yeah, pretty show. much. I mean, the, this is you know kind of their their decline comes not far after, which you know is mostly uh, the the hearing problems for uh, Miller just keep getting worse, despite him wearing earplugs and uh, headphones designed for people who fire shotguns uh, at the shows, which that must have been, in some way, kind of a punk visual. You, you'll, see it, you'll see it when I cut to the, uh, when I show you, the, share the live video of it. It's, it's yeah. very weird to see. Honestly, we'll get to this in a few chapters, but the thing it weirdly reminds me the most of is uh, Steve Albini's uh, bizarre uh across the weight belt, uh, waist belt <laughs> as just like completely inexplicable but somehow workmanlike uh, uh, punk apparel. Yeah, that's okay. a brilliant yeah. comparison. That's that's yes, it's like it's 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 a gear move. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, his was like he needed a medical device, and Steve Albini was just being a weirdo, just being strange. Um, so yeah, he he was obviously suffering. He basically was saying that like you know when it's quiet at night, he's just hearing like dissonant chords in his head, which sounds awful. Um, and like despite the fact that he's wearing ear protection, a uh, sound come. I, I was disturbed by this description of that sound comes into your head through the bones of your face, <laughs> which I'm just like, you know what? When you put it that way, y- you're right. But uh, yikes, yeah, it's, it's I don't like thinking horror. about it that way. Yeah, it's a yeah. little creepy. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Clint also uh, had developed like a kind of like a low level drinking problem, uh, which he described as a controlled low level draining of my energies and output. So they're just kind of like, you know, you know, not not super functional at this point, uh, not super motivated. And so they call it quits in 1983. Um, they start with two farewell shows at the uh, Bradford Hotel in Boston. Did you ever go to shows there, Rob? Uh, no, I, the Bradford hotel. No, um, like really weird. Like uh, honestly, everything about them, like coming to the end was so sort of, uh, haphazard. There was something, mm-hmm. you know, like it wasn't like, you know, going out with a bang, like, um, you know, like that they, you know, that their last show was, you know, I think they, they were on like Long Island or something or, or they were Staten Island. They were yeah. opening for uh, a public image limited, which is so funny that their last official show at that time was opening for a band that was openly hostile to them. Yes. It, it's like really kind of like astonishing that like that was what they went out with, but it was, it was the kind of thing, you know, like I, I, I found out that they broke up like reading it in the Boston Phoenix. And it was kind of thing of like, wait, why are they breaking up? Like when they're, you know, about to, you know, it's like a kid's perspective, like, they're, right. you know, like their next record is going to be the one that finally, you know, right. like people get on board with this. And uh, it, it, but yeah, like the, the suffering of, of tinnitus, something that, you know, was very unknown at the time. I, 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 like a lot of people learned the word from Roger Miller. And mm. the, the description of Conley's drinking problem in, in the book, I, it's really, really sensitive. I, I actually, I learned a lot from it. Like the, the mm. term jackpot drinker, which like, I'd never heard yes. before this book, yeah. but like just the really like uh, empathetic and sensitive like discussion of of that, like definitely no vocabulary for that would have existed. And, you know, like right. 1982, it's amazing that he was able to do it the way he did it. Like, yeah, totally, totally. So I want to get to this Bedford joke because I do have footage of it. Yeah. But, but just to flesh out what Rob said, the deal was that they 
had these two shows that were their final Boston shows that <laughs> they were their official send off. But then also they had like four more dates still book on the book. So they had to like go do that after they had done their final home shows. Yeah. And as Molly was alluding to, they went and played their absolute final show of this first era in Staten Island opening for public image and going with the theme of this book. Everybody who plays with public image says that they are all assholes. And it's astounding. even like the, like the every, road crew is mean yeah, to them. Yeah. Every chapter in this book has a, and then we did the show opening for public image limited. It's funny because you were comparing them to a minor threat who you're doing tomorrow. Like, mm-hmm. you know, being you know, kind of like the opposite end of Burma in terms of age and in terms of cultural sophistication, musically, like whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. But it's funny that like that their opening for Public Image Limited thing is like they're they're so emotionally hurt that like that these guys <laughs> that are they're, assholes. That they're idols. Yes, and, right. and that he didn't even like he didn't even come to see the opening band. You know, like yes. and that they're so crushed by that, and that that you know Ian makes a vow he will always see the opening band like at every show. Like it's just kind of funny. It just says a lot about the difference between Burma and Minor Threat. That you know, to them, like to Burma, this is just you know like. Business as usual, and, and yeah, minor it feels right. of it. It's a very uh, come on, man. Just like we're just <laughs> playing our last show here. Can you, the roadies <laughs> not be yelling at us? Totally, totally. It's just unbelievable. And like, and you know, what a sad way for it to go out too. You know, like pl- playing like a show where like nobody wanted them to be there and nobody yeah. wanted to listen to them. Again, it's it's more of that. It's like the body rejecting them. All right, let's watch a little <laughs> trem two from <laughs> totally. the the good sh- the good show at uh their good final show in. Boston. And this song is so fucking good. Uh, I love him just sp- squatting, smoking a mig set cigarette in the middle <laughs> while they're setting up this echo. Mitchell cigarette. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, what a foxy haircut. Mm hmm. And this song, I think, is the best example of that drum thing that I was talking about where everything just interlocks so perfectly. There's a, you know, sort of not stage diving, but sort of a stage waggling where people are sort of uh, artfully. (laughs) People are kind of like getting up on the stage and like doing a little jig and then hopping off. Pretty gentle in comparison to what I imagine uh, black flag situations were. Go back in. 
I just I think the song is very uh, beautiful and haunting and mysterious in a very hard edge rock way. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is my favorite Burma track of all. Oh yeah, it's it's great. And it is funny. Yeah, it's funny seeing Clint in his little like uh, button up shirt and. Uh, the yeah the giant headphones again it must just been like people in the crowd being like why why the fuck is he wearing huge ass headphones on stage i'm stunned he can even play well like i thought i would find that so incredibly distracting if you're kind of hearing yourself in your own skull i don't know anyway that's Trim too. How long is that set altogether? Uh, it is. This video is 57 minutes. It's a very nice quality. It's uh, all divided into tracks on this YouTube channel. Very nice. A shout out, uh, YouTube user, the Hardcore Slash Punk Archive, for hold hosting that. Uh, would highly recommend. I was scrolling through it the other day, and it was uh, great. Fantastic footage. Oh, one of the kids that you can see in the crowd uh, in that is uh, Patrick Amory, who like later became product manager for Matador, in charge of like the uh, amazing Mission of Burma reissues. Wow! Yes, I, that's very cool. His, it was probably how I this got his into it. I've, Hell yes! I've had Patrick's zine like on my shelf since 1988. So like, so cool. Yeah, this is this is forced exposure. This is the zine I was telling you. <laughs> you're tur- you're turning into the Golden Gate yeah. Bridge so, due to the sorry. zoom settings. This, 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 yes, uh, but this uh, you know this is the zine, the zine that you know like we most depended on for Mission of Burma info. But that, that's, I mean, that's the it, thing. Sorry, you still have a zine uh, versus you know the the internet littered with uh, broken links and yeah, uh, that, de- desolate yes. URLs. You still that would, got that zine. Yeah. That would now be a defunct uh, Twitter account called at Mission of Burma updates. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Totally, would it'd be a, a, a angel fire site, basically? Yeah, like <laughs> GeoCities, like oh, Burma Shrine ninety nine. Oh like. God! So I was talking about this b- briefly immediately before we started recording, but I wanted to bring it up specifically now that we are kind of at the end of this. That there is the joy and tragedy kind of running through this book is that all of these bands, kind of in their own way, have a kind of humorous but also tragic story built into them and obviously like last week we did Minutemen which is a very specifically tragic yeah. story with the death of D. Boone but there is also something very uh, inherently tragic to the mission story which is this band that is basically universally acclaimed by everybody who gets to hear it music press anybody who, who uh, hears them is like these guys are the fucking real deal they not just rock but are like qualitatively uh, good at everything they attempt. Everybody in the local scene loves them, and yet they cannot break out because they're simply not the infrastructure. For as you said, eighteen months later, they maybe would have had had what it took to make it na- uh, nationally. But then also, the guy, one of the guys who's the central creative uh, vision of it, has this you know medical condition that is not deadly, but is going to prevent him from playing live. And I mean, I get. I guess I. I just wanted to note that this there is a kind of a central tragedy in all these bands of that the the hard part about being the first is that in your own way it, it 
specifically precludes you from being the greatest at something, even if you maybe are technically the greatest. Just mm. nobody gets to hear you in your time, you know? Absolutely. But one one of the amazing things about like what might have seemed tragic, like circle Y2K when this book was written and published, is is that really like in many ways the most amazing part of the story was yet to come. Um mm. because through all those years, I mean, it, it was weird that for so long, Mission of Burma were almost always written about as like tragic story of like a band that should have and, you know, like, and they they broke up too soon and, and we were all deprived of Burma. Um, and it, it's really weird to think that during all those years, they just got more and more popular because people kept passing their music around. So it was mm-hmm. mind blowing in 1988 when... REM were on the green tour and they were doing Academy fight song as an encore. Mm-hmm. It is difficult to overstate how shocking that was. If you are a mission of Burma fan, like in the eighties to think that like, mm-hmm. wow, like every night, like more people are hearing REM do this song in one gig than ever saw Burma combined at all their gigs mm-hmm. during their lifetime. And yeah, and it was amazing that like, and of course, like because REM being the boosters of other people's music that they were and are, um, and all those kids like definitely like became Burma fans from like seeing REM play the song, and it was amazing that like Burma just not being there, just you know like and, and even like with the other great bands that they did, uh, you know you can still see Roger Miller play shows in Boston. I went to see him open for Sonny Chirac once, and uh, it was just him solo. It wasn't Bird Songs of the Mesozoic, and it wasn't No Man, but it was like a similar kind of you know like gadgety guitar thing it, but he he opened he did this amazingly beautiful solo guitar version of sunrise space is the place and mm-hmm. it was just astoundingly beautiful and i just felt so like you know honestly so lucky just to be in a room where roger miller was playing guitar and like but you know and it was again just like opening for somebody else but then when they do their reunion shows in in the 2000s it's 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 so much more than anybody like would have hoped or expected. I went to mm-hmm. see them at Bowery Ballroom. This was in 2001. And I you know, was very excited to see it, but it was a reunion show. Expectations were as low as low could be. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you go see a band that you loved, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, like not, not at that point, but like, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And you think, okay, I just hope they're, I hope they're happy. You know, like I hope they're not like completely embarrassing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I hope too. I recognize the songs and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you go there and and your best case scenario is you're hoping for, ah, you know, like good old time sake. That's basically mm-hmm. what you go to. And and I think it's, it's safe to say that almost all the audience who went were all Burma fans. Like it was like kind of amazing. There were no casual fans at their shows. And <laughs> um, and it was a thing where I think for the most part, everybody had that expectation that like we all just thought like hope it's okay just for old time's sake we want to show our support and it's fair to say that people who went to those shows were not at all prepared for how great those specific shows were and in terms of seeing like like grown men weepingly openly at a show <laughs> just like just in terms of the thing of strangers making eye contact you just turn to the person next to you who you don't know and you look at each other like is this really happening like it was like completely amazing not only are they here but they're great and all these songs sound great yes and also like i i, I know we're not talking about you know like that that the human like 
that the humanity and kindness, you know, like we're not talking about these people's personal lives or, you know, like, and, and I feel like a jerk even saying it, but people who played with Mission Burma, they will all tell you the same thing. It was not like opening for Public Image Limited. It was uh-huh. the opposite. Just tireless music fans and boosters of other people's music. I don't think I ever saw a Burma show where they didn't like, not just mention the opening band, but give a speech about what specifically they loved about the opening band. Uh, That's so More good. than once they would say, yeah, you know, Neptune totally blew us away. We, we feel ridiculous following them. Or like the Rogers sisters were so <laughs> great. How can we even follow them? Like just, you know, just very generous, kind people that, you know, almost anybody mm-hmm. who dealt with them on any level will tell you. And so that warmth that people, people were just like, I hope they're, you know, I hope it's just not embarrassing and miserable and degrading for them to do this mm-hmm. and to see that they had that and that Peter Prescott had, I'm still not totally sure what he had these glass panels around his drums to, to protect <laughs> cool. Roger Miller from the sound. Like, oh. um, it was a stage setup, like nothing I've seen, like, uh, you, you can find footage like, and, and he'd always have, you know, Prescott would always have his, you know, his, his militantly left-wing shirts on, but he'd always have these glass panels around to protect Roger Miller from the drum sound and make it easier possible for him to do this. I'm yeah, sure was yeah. I was going to ask, and I was trying to look this up to see if he got any kind of like treatment or anything on uh, the, the tinnitus or if there was some kind of resolution to that or if they just were like, yeah, you know what, let's go for it. Let's figure out a way to do it. I, uh, I don't and know. I couldn't really, couldn't really see anything on that. I, th- I think that's why, they, you know, like he had to stop touring with them again like 15 years later. Mm-hmm. But the thing of like... I mean, another 15 years out of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, in an amazing 15 years, they kept making records. We mentioned On Off On or On Off Off. Mm-hmm. The Obliterati yeah. is the one that absolutely kills me. That th- that record, I, I swear, it's as good as Versus. It's like just like absolutely in the mode Burma band. And to the point where it, it sounded not so much like a band that had broken up and gotten back together, but like a long running band. And and it seemed like, oh, yeah. And it's weird to think that there was this weird 17 year period where they, they <laughs> didn't exist. Like, but you forgot about that because like they just kept there was this continuity with what they did before, but they weren't resting on their laurels. I always amaz- remember this amazing show that Ali and I went to in um, spring of, of 2010. And it was at mm-hmm. uh, North Six. You remember North Six? Mm-hmm. It's, oh, yeah. Then it yep. became the Music Hall of Williamsburg. I think it was still North Six at that point. But um it was kind of, it was amazing. It was such an amazing Burma show, one of countless that we saw together. And it was amazing. And it was only like a couple hours after the show. We're like eating eating a slice. It's three in the morning. And like Ali says, wait a minute. Correct me if I'm wrong. They didn't do Academy and they didn't do Revolver. And like <laughs> and I was like, God, you didn't you're even right. realize? No, like we didn't realize. And and, and like and nobody, like absolutely nobody minded. It was the kind of thing where like two hours after the show, you'd notice huh, that's interesting. They didn't do either of their like most massively famous, by far their most famous songs. Like, and nobody was bummed out about it. There were no angry <laughs> clowns amazing. at this show. And there was <laughs> no like, oh, why didn't you do the hits? Like, it was the kind of thing where like, it, where it, they had really escaped whatever kind of past that, you know, like they might've seemed trapped in. So it's funny that like, when Our Band Could Be Your Life was written, like we really only had- This whole chapter was not- yes. In their mm-hmm. story. And, and, and there was a sad ending to this story that very unlike a lot of the other endings of stories in that book, that like there was a huge happy part that came after that where they were able to do this band as fulfilled grownups where, you know, like they had figured their stuff out. They loved doing it. They were still very close friends. They're still- Put it, putting out stuff that is considered as good as the old things. 
Uh, Rob, do you, do you have a, a track off the obliterati that you could wreck? Yes. A uh, song called Twice. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, Twice. Yes. I'm going to warn you. They spell twice with the numeral two and then uh, W-I-C-E. It, it, it's, it's a, I'll forgive them. That's all right. You know, the kids were uh, spelling uh, stuff that way in 2006. Um, yep. It's also, it, it, it seems, uh, well, it's a, a completely, like, this song is so Same melodic bass stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's immediately interesting to hear how they benefit from, you know, access to 20 years progressed recording uh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, tech. And also, I, I mean, I don't know how these were recorded. I presume people who were extremely enthusiastic to work with a newly reformed mission. Yeah, well, when they came back, there, there were, you know, whole new generations of musicians who had been inspired by them were delighted to work for them. So the work for them is the wrong way to put it, but like, we're delighted to work with them. Yeah, yeah. Like, help them make their stuff. Yeah. <laughs> This is the Burma chord right here. Yes. Like no other band has that chord. That's so funny. Phenomenal. All hail the Burma chord. I wonder if there if a band tried to do that now, if they were just sort of testing to see if anyone was listening or had the reference (laughs) of being like, that's that's the that's the Chord. It's impossible to think of uh, like anybody re- resolving a chorus or a uh, a verse on a chord like that right now. That you yeah. just you simply could not do that. I mean, yeah. not that there are like bands right now, but you know, who am I? Would you would you end a Bruno Mars verse on that chord? Absolutely not. Absolutely, people would riot. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like the way that you know baseball players used to have those crazy batting stances and they hold the bat wrong you know like and like you know that's before coaching was professionalized so like hank aaron held the bat wrong his entire career and hit yeah. 750 uh like but it's it, you know burma were able to do these things partly because they were old and confident when they started this band and they knew what they were doing and what they didn't want to do and who they didn't want to take advice from but something i love about this incarnation of burma is that the martin swope role uh, was was bob weston of shellac uh, mm-hmm. who epitomized that handshake now Albini as I was referencing earlier absolutely and, and it, 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 what could be more beautiful than, than the idea of you know the Martin Swope role being taken over by an archetypal brilliant musician of the kind who like his entire career had been taking inspiration from the breakthroughs that Burma created in the late 70s and early 80s so like just a really kind of beautiful thing for you know, a lifelong diehard Burma fan like Bob Weston to 
you know, to do that, knowing exactly what he wanted to do and what the tradition was and what the role was and how it fit into their music. And, and he really fit into their live shows brilliantly. Always remember this great show they played in McCarran Pool. Remember what mm-hmm. the shows in McCarran Pool when they had the, the pool parties <laughs> on Sunday afternoon? Yes. <laughs> Love those. Um, and I remember like going to see Burma at one of those. And it was one of those, you know, super emotional, like a lot of their shows were. And uh, the show was introduced by the Brooklyn politician, Marty Markowitz. And then, mm-hmm. oh, yes. <laughs> um, and it, at the end of his speech, he had Bob Weston do an edit of his speech. So he just like played, played it back to him. So like, like just doing like leaps and bits of it. And it was like so kind of beautiful, but also like it was funny. I mean, it was it was funny for me as a, a Burma fan who went back with them emotionally, at least to their, you know, their, their earliest days um, to be standing in an open swimming pool in New York City for a pool party where Mishnah Burma are playing and they're headlining. This is their gig. There are thousands of people mm-hmm. there to see them in this swimming pool, not even in Boston, in New York. And mm-hmm. and Bob Weston is doing the Martin Swope edit of the politician's speech who, who introduces them. And that, that that was, you know, it was just kind of a beautiful thing of like having like lived for so long thinking that this was a beautiful band that got cut short of their prime and they mm-hmm. never had a chance to reach the people who, you know, who who were just ready and waiting for a band like this. And to see them, you know, in this like weirdly beautiful and hippie-ish kind of, you know, sunshiny outdoor festival, you know, like, yeah. and, you know, some of the people are old school fans. Some of them, you know, like me going back a while with the band. Some of them, you know, just like kids who are there for the pool party who are really into this band that they love. And it's just like kind of a beautiful thing of like, you know, just honestly feeling just like grateful to have lived to see this, you know, like, mm-hmm. and and grateful that Burma were able to see this and play their music at this level of attention to people who loved it and, you know, respected it. Something that, that was not possible for them 20 years earlier. Yeah, the, I mean, the end of their chapter is like them sounding just a little frustrated about like, you know, being ahead of your time is great, but it would be nice to be with your time. And it sounds like... They made it to be with the time, even if it wasn't necessarily, you know what I mean? Like they, that's, that's as with the time as you could possibly hope for as Mission of Burma is to be a rocking, rocking a Williamsburg pool party. Yeah. That's pretty sick. And, and, and and knowing that all these, these young bands who you've influenced that they want nothing, but you know, like, but, but to play with you and that, Mm -hmm. but they're able, that they were able, I guess, to get the attention that they'd always deserved. And that, kind of like frustration that you mentioned that's at the end of their chapter in this book, you know, just kind of got ameliorated by the fact that they were able to do it again at this level when people were paying attention and partly Mm -hmm. because of how their music had changed the world, they were able to connect with people on a level that they'd always deserved to. (laughs) It's, it's also kind of funny how, how gratifying it must be to even just take that middle part of your career off when you're still grinding and people are, are you know, you're releasing your sophomore or third record and being like, oh, Mission lost it, to just skip immediately to the part <laughs> where you're like in your 40s and your crowd is already intergenerational and you're playing for people in like from their early 20s to even older than you and you're like, oh, wow, so we just had to release one album, wait 20 years, and now we are can just <laughs> seamlessly enter elder statesmen of rock. Easy, easy. Yeah, yeah easy. Game, game is easy. Easy breeze. Easy. We only had to fly out of Atlanta uh, 60, yeah, 60 yeah. times. Yes. So the, 
that they, you know, that they paid their dues at the time when nobody was paying attention and they had to do everything yeah. the hard way, had to do everything themselves. You know, like now, now they were able to play their music. And I just love for something, for some reason, there was just something really symbolically, really satisfying and gratifying about the fact that they could do this show. Um, like the one I mentioned where at, at North Six, where, you know, like where nobody like had any axe to grind at all about the fact that they didn't play Academy Fight Song or Revolver mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. we didn't even notice till a couple hours after the show that that was, you know, that they were able to do those kinds of shows. You know, it would have been, you know, it would have been fine on, on, it would have been more than enough if they'd been able to do sort mm -hmm. of more traditional reunion shows where they play the hits and like, you know, we would have, that would have been a very happy ending to this story on one level, but that they were able to, you know, go back to really being Missioner Burma, like, and making fantastic records like the Obliterati or, or on, off on, or, you know, like, and, and that they kept making into the, into the 20 teens. It's just a, you know, really beautiful thing and a tribute to their perseverance and, and, and their, their character and, and, and the fact that, you know, everybody, everybody they encountered along the way loved them. You know, they didn't burn bridges mm -hmm. with people screwing people over, mm. you know, they, they made nothing but friends and admirers along the way. That's a great lesson of how to be. Not everyone needs to be nice all the time, but being, being nice some of the time is, is that you're never going to regret that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a lovely sentiment to end the uh, the the terrible truth about Burma. The horrible truth <laughs> about Burma. Horrible truth. The horrible the horrible truth about Burma. Uh, uh, that that being nice rocks, and uh, if you're good at your thing uh, and and stick with it, eventually you'll get your due. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. There, like absolutely a lesson in you know like sticking to your guns creatively and having the audience find you instead of you chasing mm. that audience. I, mm -hmm. I, I like to think that that you know that story about them you know, seeing R.E.M.'s van in Atlanta and feeling like they're being <laughs> ushered out the door, you know, like they, they, when they came back, they, they managed to outlast R.E.M., you know, like, Ooh, that's true. <laughs> gang of the four, bus came back yes, around. gang of four would have loved to, you know, like do the thing where like, where they broke up in 1983 and they never made that hard <laughs> record. And like, and, and, <laughs> you know, and they just came back in the two thousands and made actual real gang of four records. Like, but like mm -hmm. Burma, Burma, like absolutely a best case scenario for, artistic integrity and and artistic independence and just really beautiful story and in many ways the second half of their story is even more beautiful than the first half totally oh, well, with man. that let's move confidently into the end part of our episode <laughs> uh rob thank you so much for coming on thank you uh, this thank is you so for nice sharing to hear about uh to share some boston excellence with a, mm -hmm. a another uh a, you know an alumni of boston excellence themselves uh Rob, we keep, I know we can find you on Rolling Stone. Is there anything specific that you would like to plug right now? I would like to plug this amazing podcast that that I have loved, <laughs> that I've loved, and I've always coveted being on this podcast. Uh, thank you for what you do. You are you are the the both the Burma and the Swope of of podcasting. Oh and, my god! And, oh, what an honor! I, I thank yes. you for for all the magic you do. Rob, well, well, if you're if you're a few to us now, I will get you on record while we're recording. Uh, I want to get you back for the Morrissey memoir. Would you do Morrissey with us? Absolutely. Talk about like being on the absolute opposite end of of the moral spectrum and and, yeah. and the humanity spectrum from Burma. Wow, could not think of yep. a, a, a more opposite cases on the you know like. Yes, Public Image Limited never burned as many bridges as as Morrissey <laughs> did. There's absolutely nobody he's encountered in his career who ever yes. wants to be in the same room with him again. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that, that that would be a, a, a good a different side of this. And, you know, also just uh, so many great karaoke jams and uh, just so much to, to go over. And, and you know, big, big ass book. We need a big ass name for that. We got to get Rob Sheffield on. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait. That book is absolutely brilliant. I, I, I completely love it. It totally like sums up, you know, like everything that, that the godforsaken, dismal, miserable folks who are cursed like me to be Morrissey fans for life. Much against <laughs> our, much against our better better wisdom, it, 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 like that book really speaks to me in, in ways that I really wish mm-hmm. it didn't. The, well, the fact that it, it came out on uh, Penguin, I think, and just <laughs> this like Dickensian like novel of like misery and woe and uh, grievances. Yes, uh, grievances. I, I just we, oh, we got to do it. Oh, He's airs yes. he airs some grievances, which uh, so, you know what. Maybe he should. So well, after out. this series, yes. we'll take a break, a little bit of a break from '80s rock, and then we'll we'll get you back on. <laughs> yes, but after yes, a few months, yes, but. grievances to be shared for sure. It's like, oh yeah, Thompson Twins, whose album was number one and kept our album at number two, <laughs> and I'm still <laughs> mad about this. Like 40 years later, it's like, how, how many times reading that book do you just stop and say, "You are such an awful person. How can you stand to be Morrissey?" <laughs> I, I think you simply can't, which is how you end up writing Morrissey yes, songs. Mm-hmm. That's got to be it. <laughs> yep. He's down down with the sickness. Very down. Very down. <laughs> well, until, until uh, that future reunion, uh, this has been And Introducing. Um, you can find us online at And Intro Pod. We will be back uh, next week with another favorite of the pod. It's Murder Brian. It's Brian Quimby going to be talking about Minor Threat. Uh, with us Hell yeah. very much Can't looking wait. forward to that we're going to be doing that we're, we're recording that tomorrow you'll be hearing that next week uh, at and intro pod on twitter F- send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com you can find us as always at soundcloud on soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod <laughs> uh, we have a lag as we're recording this so I feel like it's yeah, taking this is hard. forever you can hear the echo I, I yeah. thought Martin Swope was maybe in, in a corner of oh, your yeah. apartment <laughs> like just... yeah I'm gonna turn this into a tape yeah. loop and, uh, and Do it. loop loop us out uh, rate us on iTunes make tape loops of the tell a friend tell your music friend tell a friend tell, music. Them yes, a very, tell your music write friend write them a very positive glowing review on iTunes do that yeah. yes mm. and, and also put this on a tape or a friend, yeah, yes. With, with or make a make a zine, make a zine. about the, the, the podcast that you like and the drama going in their lives and what podcasters have broken up and who are and which ones have died, <laughs> uh, and drop it at your local coffee shops and record stores for people to uh, you know get Twitter beat drama about uh, podcasters four months after the fact. Analog analog beef is uh, maybe the beef that we should be aspiring yes. to these days. Absolutely. But until then, we'll see you next week. On Wee Podicano, this is an introducing. <laughs> <laughs>